0: Everyone, you're listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week I accompany you on a trip back in time, 50 years to be exact, where we report on all the hockey news from that time period. In this week's episode, We're looking at the week of February 15th to 21st, 1971. Our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and their support's been critical in enabling us to get all the great hockey news that we found from 50 years ago. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario, in southern Ontario. The Breakwall produces some of the finest craft beers in Canada, and I think they've got the best pub food on the planet. When things open up again, I would love to meet any of our our listeners at the Breakwall for a beer and a burger or a pizza. If you enjoy what we do here every day on Twitter and each week on the uh, podcast, uh, we'd invite you to help us out by subscribing to the uh, podcast at patreon.com slash hockey 50 years. Uh, What we do with our Patreon subscribers is we provide uh, several times a month some very special content that we put together uh, where we dive a little deeply into the subjects that were uh, making the news in the hockey world 50 years ago. You also get early access to each week's podcast instead of Friday when they normally drop you'll be able to get to them a couple days early and we have some very special content upcoming. We're having a lot of fun with these special episodes and our subscribers seem to be enjoying them now and we thank everyone who's already subscribed to these special podcasts. Just before I get started this week as I record this today uh, yesterday we learned of the death of one of the great hockey writers. And he was especially prominent during this time 50 years ago. Frank Orr, Frank Orr, who worked for the Toronto Star for so many years. I followed Frank's career, although he started about 1961. I didn't really get to know him till later in the 60s because we did not get the Toronto Star, although we would sometimes get. Articles in the Hamilton Spectator—that was the the big paper that that we got where I lived—and we also had the Welland Evening Tribune. Every once in a while, we would get a Frank Orr article. I really enjoyed his writing, his insight, and his humor. He had a a good sense of humor, and he was one of those guys that sort of prompted me. Uh, as I went into the journalism field out of university. I didn't end up making a career in journalism, but I did always have that very special interest, and Frank Orr was one of the reasons, and we uh, send our condolences to his family. May he rest in peace. Last week, we had some uh, pretty interesting stuff that we brought to you. We had more reaction Uh, and examine some of the underlying factors uh, that may have led the St. Louis Blues to trade their captain, Red Berenson, to the Detroit Red Wings in that deal that sent Gary Unger back to St. Louis. Uh, We learned last week that forward Tommy Williams was dropped from the North Stars lineup uh, despite undergoing some very serious personal crisis, illustrating how little regard uh, employee employers, especially the National Hockey League, had for the mental health of their players back in 1971. And we also talked about the season's most incredible goalkeeping performance turned in by the veteran Gumpersley in a game he playing for his North Stars against the powerful Boston Bruins. This week, the main stories we're going to be looking at. Well, we have a profile of Maple Leaf legend George Armstrong, which was written by the great Red Burnett of the Toronto Star this week 50 years ago. We'll have a quick look at the Pee Wee Hockey Tournament as it was in 1971 and what it meant to a lot of the players. And we'll learn how the Higgins goalie masks are made as uh, there's a nice Associated Press article that was circulated 50 years ago this week about New Englander Ernie Higgins. Here in 2021, we recently lost another hockey icon, George Armstrong, whom many have called the greatest captain ever of the Toronto Maple Leafs. While a lot of others would suggest names such as Ted Kennedy and Sillaps, there's no disputing the Chiefs' place in hockey history and Red Burnett of the Toronto Star had this profile 50 years ago this week. One of these nights, it could be tomorrow night against the Pittsburgh Penguins. The red light will go on for George Armstrong, giving him 296 National Hockey League goals as a Maple Leaf. And this will tie him with Frank Mahavlich for the most goals scored by a player wearing the Toronto uniform. The Chief figures to better the Big M's Toronto mark before the current national hockey league season is completed but the elder statesman of the leafs doesn't regard it as such a big thing he points out that the mark would have been out of sight if the big m had stayed in toronto up to this point in his career, instead of being traded away in 1964. George's teammates and the Maple Leaf Brass know better than to downgrade Armstrong's achievement. It will be another milestone in the career of a man who has been a leader and inspiration to his team since Conn Smythe appointed him team captain just before the 1957-58 season. The Chief relinquished the title when he retired briefly before the 69-70 season and Dave Keon, is now the Maple Leafs captain. That was the third time that Armstrong had announced his retirement. The first came before the expansion draft of 1967, and that was actually a ploy engineered by then general manager of the Maple Leafs, Punch Imlac, to prevent the chief from being drafted by one of the six new NHL teams. George quit again in 1968 69 phoning Imlac at 2 a.m. after a New York defeat offering to come back if Imlac thought he could help. He did come back all the way into the playoffs. In 69-70 and again last fall he walked out after training camp returning later after several hurdles with general manager Jim Gregory and then vice president King Clancy had been cleared. Each time George said he retired because he didn't think he could help the Maple Leaf team. The real reason, according to Red Burnett, was actually money. Armstrong's value to the club goes far beyond his work on the ice. And that was one of the reasons coach John McClellan was happy to see George give it another world. McClellan said he's a winner a great man in your dressing room and a steadying influence to kids on the ice. McClellan went on to say that there's no real way of measuring George's worth to the hockey club. John said, like our captain Keon and Bobby Bond, he has tasted Stanley Cup victory as a leaf and to them, there is no substitute for winning. McClellan said that hockey-wise, a George kills penalties for him, And he's a valuable help to young players like Jim Harrison and Brian Spencer as he plays on the third line. King Clancy uses one word to describe George Armstrong and that word is class. The king said I don't have a vote in the Hockey Hall of Fame but to me Army is a Hall of Famer on and off the ice. They threw away the mold when they made him to me. He is the ultimate in a team player, and that is high praise from a Hall of Famer like King Clancy. Leafs defenseman Jimmy McKenney says there ought to be a law against having roommates like Armstrong when the team goes on the road. The Chief insists on sleeping with the windows wide open no matter what city in which they're playing. McKenny, who likes things rather warm in his hotel rooms claims that when he's rooming with Armstrong he wakes up in the morning with icicles between his toes. Johnny Bauer yet another Leaf legend he's a retired goalkeeper now he's a scout uh, coaches the young goalkeepers well he roomed with Armstrong for 10 seasons and he says that George is the finest individual he has ever been associated with. Johnny says, uh, but McKenny is right about that open window though. One night we arrived in Boston on a late flight. Armstrong threw open the window and in the morning when I stepped out of bed, I walked into a foot of snow. It had drifted through the open window while we both slept. Johnny also pointed out that George has trouble sleeping after or before important games John said that George would read all night he would read the financial pages and books on hotel administration if he happened to find them in the room but he's very considerate John says he does it in the bathroom with the door closed so as not to disturb his roommate John also said on many a night George got up and tucked an extra blanket around me because he knew that I hated that damn open window. John also said that uh, Armstrong seldom talked about hockey and never about his own work on the ice. John said when I get depressed after a defeat in which I figured I'd let in a couple of cheap goals he'd snap me out of it. John said Armstrong would point out that a lot of guys make mistakes and he'd insist that he would pulled a few dandies himself over the years. Most of the time, George shouldered the blame for other people, according to Johnny. Then he would add, forget about the game, it's gone. Let's start thinking about tomorrow night and we'll win. Johnny says, I guess that's what Imlac meant by the power of positive thinking, something that Imlac always uh, spouted off about. George Armstrong refuses to take bows for his work with the younger Maple Leafs. Hockey's a simple game, George says. They discuss situations and moves usually have the right answers. All they want from me is the okay. The odd time when I see a kid making a mistake, I may give them a tip and, and they take it in the spirit that it's offered most of the time. Talking about Brian Spencer, George says he's going to be a good one. They say he doesn't skate well but he's faster than most people think. That was Red Burnett on George Armstrong 50 years ago as we mourn the passing of George now 50 years later. George to me was always uh, just the best guy you could see he had a a sense of humor he was good with everyone on the team and i thought uh, myself ted kennedy was my favorite all-time leaf captain but george armstrong rates right up there with him and he will definitely be missed getting to some of the news and notes from this week uh We'll start off with Canadian Health Minister John Monroe saying this week that Canada could ice a team at the 1972 Winter Olympics in Sapporo, Japan. Mr. Monroe believes that Canadians are ready to accept the fact that a team made solely of amateurs would be the only way that Canada can compete in that tournament. My question would be, why do We even bother back then as it is today. The Olympics was and is basically a sham competition designed to do just one thing and that's put lots of money into the pockets of old white men often at the expense of the young athletes whom they exploit. I, I wasn't at all enthusiastic about them playing in the Olympics. I like international hockey. I like best on best but 50 years ago. It was nothing like that at all. As Bob Orr went to the ice from the Bruins' dressing room just before Sunday afternoon's game at Maple Leaf Gardens, a woman rushed out of the onlooking crowd and punched Bobby square in the face before disappearing again into the crowd, never to be apprehended. Bobby laughed off the incident, calling the woman in a, in an article by Red Burnett "quote a dumb broad." And haven't found much more reporting on the incident at all. I had heard a few things about it, but nothing I can confirm, so I won't report it. So we'll just leave it at that for now. But it did make the papers, at least when it happened. Bobby Orr's uh, lawyer, Agent Alan Eagleson, told a Vancouver luncheon this week uh, with the Bruins in town in Vancouver that Bobby Orr will shortly sign a million-dollar NHL contract that's not a million a year, don't get carried away, this is 1971, Bobby would be paid five, or sorry, $200,000 a year for five years. Eagleson said the contract was actually ready to sign right then and there, but Bobby did not want to be a distraction during the season signing for that record amount and that he thought he would wait until after the playoffs before inking the new deal. Bernie Prant continues to get acclimatized to his new environment with the Toronto Maple Leafs. And during practice this week, Bernie was seen huddling with goaltending mate Jacques Plante. And uh, the pair was asked about the rather intense discussion they were having before Bernie could answer. Perrant spoke up quickly and he said, Bernie, that is a secret between us. You're the first I have told what I told you today. This will help you keep you in the National Hockey League for another 15 years. And we can tell you Bernie Perrant was very, very successful after his days learning the craft with Jacques Plante while he was with the Maple Leafs. The Canadian Amateur Hockey Association this week said they were prepared to suspend a Brampton, Ontario team of eight-year-olds who were slated to tour and play some games this month in Finland. The folks who run the tight club said that they were prepared to make the trip and play the games and when they would take the matter of suspensions to court in Canada once they returned from overseas. The executive director of the CAHA, Gordon Jux, got to the crux of the issue when he said that teams who want to tour foreign countries must first ask permission of the CAHA. As usual, the adults get their noses out of joint when they perceive someone is treading on their empire, sacred ground, and the kids are the ones who usually end up suffering. That trade that sent Red Berenson and Tim Ecclestone from the Blues to the Red Wings for Gary Younger and Wayne Connolly just happens to be the gift that keeps on giving for hockey writers around North America as we found out another reason why Scotty Bowman was so interested in making that deal. The Blues this week announced that they were signing defenseman Carl Brewer to a contract. Brewer, you remember, just before training camp of the 70-71 seasons, walked out on the Red Wings saying he didn't want to play for the club. Well, everyone knew that if Brewer wanted to play National Hockey League uh, hockey, he would have to play for Detroit because he was the Red Wings' property. Well, now we find out, as the Blues say they're signing Carl Brewer, that during the big Berenson unger swap Bowman convinced Detroit general manager Ned Harkness to include the rights to Brewer into the deal now Harkness had tried to get Brewer to play for Detroit but Carl a pretty smart guy recognized exactly what Ned Harkness was and he just said I don't want to play for you Brewer can definitely help the St. Louis Blues, but even then, he would have helped the Red Wings a lot more if Harkness wasn't such a jerk. The great Maurice Richard told Bob Verdi of the Chicago Tribune this week that he wishes he were still playing in 1971 because as he said, quote, the league is so much weaker right now. The Rocket also said that if Bobby Hull, who passed him this week as number two on the all time NHL goal scoring list, can stay healthy, Bobby will eventually pass Gordie Howe. The Rocket also mentioned that Gordie Howe is still the NHL's best player. Here's an interesting tidbit from Mike Laney of the Minneapolis Star. He writes that the New York Rangers players dip their hockey sticks in baby powder before each game this is the idea of rangers longtime trainer frank pace Uh, he convinced the players that the uh, baby powder cuts the friction between the stick and the puck and it also keeps the sticks dry during the games who knew North Stars rookie Jude Druin had at this point in the season scored points in 13 straight NHL games and of course the North Star fans were talking about him setting an NHL record for for points in consecutive games. Well it was pointed out that the record for points in consecutive games in 1971 had been set in the 1959-60 season by the Boston Bruins center Bronco Horbath, and that streak lasted 22 games. Bronco's from Port Colborne, Ontario, where I've lived for many years, and I had the pleasure of meeting up with Bronco, who's from Port Colborne, at a Cub Scout uh, event that summer after he set that record. Uh, Bronco was a big booster of the Boy Scouts organization, and he even donated an entire building on a country property to a troop in nearby Waynefleet, Ontario. Joan, by the way, was making news in other ways. He's playing so well for the North Stars after being traded to Montreal in the summer, but he was suspended by National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell for three games this week for what Campbell described as an attempted assault on referee Bruce Hood. Well, Drewin was asked about the incident, and he said that he was taking a face-off, and as Hood ready to drop the puck, uh, Jude volunteered that Bruce was just like all the rest of them. Hood apparently didn't quite hear what Jude said, And he asked him to repeat what he said. And like the polite young man that Jude is, he complied with the referee's request. Hood understood exactly what the young player was saying and assessed the 10-minute misconduct. And Jude says that then I yapped at him a bit more. He was restrained by teammates, tried to get away from the teammates. And that led Hood to believe that Drew and was probably trying to assault him and that's exactly what he put in the game report to Clarence Campbell. Now now how this was handled was actually very interesting on the part of Clarence Campbell because there was diametrically opposed views from the player and the referee as to what exactly happened. So Clarence Campbell told Jude Druin he was being suspended for three games. Druin Had a broken wrist at the time, and he wasn't going to play in the next three games anyway. But don't tell Clarence Campbell that. This week, maybe Bruce was having a bad week, we don't know, but we do know he was in hot water with a couple other teams this week as well. In fact, after one Pittsburgh Penguins game, their coach, Red Kelly, blamed Bruce Hood for the loss and said, we were robbed by a Hood named Bruce. (laughs) The NHL amateur draft that takes place every June is starting to get more interest fans as they're seeing how how players uh, from the junior ranks can play in the NHL and how they can change teams. The Buffalo Sabres would be nothing without Gilbert Perot, who was the first pick last year. Well, scouts are saying that the pickings for this year's draft are quite slim as far as prospects from Western Canada are concerned. The general consensus is that the best prospects available out of West include uh, forward Chuck Arneson and Gene Carr of Flin Flon, defenseman Ron Jones of Edmonton and Neil Komodoski of Winnipeg, and another fine young defenseman by the name of Bill Height. The scouts are saying that there just aren't any Bobby Clarks or Reggie Leeches this time around. February 17th was a memorable night at the Olympia Arena in Detroit as Gordie Howe lined up with his sons Mark and Marty who played for the Detroit Junior Red Wings in the Southern Ontario Junior Hockey League. The three played on a line in a charity exhibition game. Everyone who was present was wishing there was some way for Gord to play in the NHL with his boys. But everyone knows with the new Universal Amateur Draft, and the Howes know this as well, that's nothing but a dream. Those boys will end up on other NHL teams. Very unlikely they could both be with the Red Wings. Gordy by the way hit the 20 goal mark for this season this week and that is the 22nd consecutive time that he's attained that total. We got some good news this week on the condition of former National Hockey League defenseman Mark Rayom, who was injured in an automobile accident on Highway 3 near Dunville, Ontario on January 24th. Mark was unconscious for four days after the crash, and then he was sort of semi-conscious for another week. Along with his head injuries, uh, Mark had a lung contusion, a broken bone in his right ankle, and a broken left index finger, and numerous lacerations. Mark's wife said that he might have to undergo more treatment at the Windsor Hospital as he was released from the Hamilton General Hospital this week. The Windsor Hospital is only seven miles from their home in LaSalle, Ontario but the good news is Mark Rayom is expected to make a complete and full recovery. We have news this week that former Red Wings general manager Sid Abel has a new gig. He's now gone to work for the Los Angeles Kings as a special assignment count. And Jack Dalmage, the sports editor of the Windsor Star, uh, who's had a really good handle on the mess that the Red Wings are right now, says that Sid Abel will end up as the next general manager of the Los Angeles Kings. And you know who the Kings' next coach is going to be, according to Jack Dalmage? Alex Delvecchio. One of the biggest events on the yearly hockey calendar 50 years ago was the Quebec International Pee Wee Hockey Tournament held every year in Quebec City. Bob Morrissey of the Montreal Gazette took a look into what the tournament meant to players and families alike. Bob writes, when Paul Alapen woke up yesterday morning, he was served orange juice, bacon and eggs and coffee if he wanted it. No, Paul wasn't staying at the Chateau Frontenac and no... He wasn't at his home. Paul Allapin was staying with total strangers, as are most of the players on the 102 teams completing here in Quebec City at the International Pee Wee Hockey Tournament. The people we're staying with are really nice, said Paul. They wake us up in the morning, they give us a good breakfast, and then they even drive us to the arena. Once the LaSalle boys arrived at the Coliseum, they become the responsibility of Jerry Denham, an official with the LaSalle Minor Hockey Association. LaSalle, we just mentioned that, is the home of Marc Rayon. I see that they're occupied, Jerry says. Sometimes they get bored staying at the arena all day, so I take them over to the youth center. There they can play ping pong, shuffleboard, or even a little bit of floor hockey. Even though LaSalle lost 4-2 to to the Peterborough Peewees and was eliminated in the tournament, they'll still remain in Quebec City until the Saturday's final day of the tournament when they'll play a Boston Peewee team in an exhibition game. And that's fine with the players, the youngsters, they're having a ball, mingling with other teams, sightseeing, filling their stomachs with hot dogs and chips, and spending their money on the numerous souvenirs that are on sale at the Quebec Coliseum. But for most of the boys, the most exciting thing about this hockey tournament is playing before the large crowds, which are usually between four and 7,000 rabid Quebec hockey fans. For most of us, says Paul, it's our first time playing in front of lots of people. Can you imagine being that age and playing in front of thousands and thousands of fans? Doesn't happen to most kids in Canada except at these kind of tournaments. Teammate Steve Houston added... We were told not to look up at the crowd that it would get us nervous. But it really didn't bother me. I looked up for the first time I was on the ice. Then at the arena, there's always the kids who are asking for autographs, hoping to get the signature of a future NHL star. I signed two autographs just as soon as I got here, said uh, Pierre Masson, who's another LaSalle's player. Pierre said, kids sitting along the boards ask you for them. Heck, he said, I'm only 12 years old. And naturally, some miss their parents while they're there. At my home, mom and dad always come to see our games, uh, Paul Alpin says. But now they're not here, you kind of feel alone, like you're just lost. Another LaSalle player, Mario Perriard, also misses his parents, But he summed it up best on how most of the kids are feeling at this great tournament. He says, sure, I miss my parents, but it's still nice to be away because there's no school. One of the more prolific goalie mask makers in the early 1970s was a plumber from Norwood, Massachusetts by the name of Ernie Higgins. Ernie produced the facial protection for many National Hockey League goalies with Jerry Cheevers and Eddie Jackman among the most prominent. Here's a profile of uh, Ernie. that was put out by the Associated Press. I wish I had the author's name. Uh, who put together this little article on Ernie Higgins. Ernie Higgins is fashion designer to some of the best hockey goalies in the world. His fashions may not be much to look at, but now at least his clients certainly are. More than a dozen goalies in the National Hockey League have been customers for one of Higgins' new face masks. They include Ed Jockerman and Jules Villeneuve of the Rangers, uh, Jerry Cheevers, Eddie Johnson of the Bruins, Charlie Hodge and Dunk Wilson of Vancouver, Gary Smith, Bob uh, Bob Sneddon of California, and Bruce Gamble and Doug Favell of Philadelphia. Now, we mention all these names, but they do not all wear the Higgins mask. Uh, Dunk Wilson, for example, really enjoyed his pretzel mask that that he'd been wearing for a few years, but they all had Higgins masks made for them. The mask-making began as a hobby in 1962 when Ernie was unable to find what he considered a suitable mask for his 12-year-old son, Neil, who's now the starting goalkeeper in 1971, at Boston College. Eddie Chadwick, a former NHL and American Hockey League goalie, spotted Neil's mask at a hockey camp in Ontario and he made arrangements to get his own fitting for the facial protection. Now, Eddie was very prominent as a guy who did not wear a mask until his final professional season, and he only wore it for a game or two while playing for Buffalo in the American Hockey League. I do have a picture of Eddie uh, out of the Courier Express of Buffalo wearing that mask, but it was a Higgins mask. That mask, by the way, is now at the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. Eddie donated it there. Once a pro like Chadwick uh, had ordered a mask, word began to pass along the hockey grapevine and Ernie Higgins then was in business. The workmanship and the thought that goes into him, Ernie recently said, uh, the masks I make today are the one-third stronger than the masks I made only a year ago. Ernie says he's continually studying the process and in fact, he hopes that within the next few months he has something even stronger. Ernie was asked if one of his masks had ever cracked or shattered on one of the goaltenders that used him, and he snapped back no sir on my mask no matter where the puck hits it has to glance thereby taking away at least half of its force and its energy. It has a tensile strength of 24,000 to 23,000 pounds per square inch according to Ernie. Most goalkeepers in the 60s and 70s said they didn't like wearing the mask because uh, it affected their vision, especially with pucks at their feet. Ernie says that he guarantees when he does a final fitting of each mask, the vision of that goalkeeper will not in any way be impaired. Dave Hainsworth, he's a goalie for the New Haven Blades of the Eastern Hockey League, was a recent client. Does that name sound familiar, Dave Hainsworth? He had uh, an uncle by the name of George, one of the greatest goalkeepers in NHL history many years ago. Higgins first placed a plastic bag over Hainsworth's face in order to make the mold for that mask. The bag covered his hair and his ears and a woman's stocking was stretched over the bag to keep it snug to Dave's head. Hainsworth's faith was then coated with a release wax, which Higgins whispers is only just Vaseline. I've seen molds that are out of this world, he said, but they had the guy's eyelashes sticking in them and everything else. Higgins, uh reassured the panic-stricken Hainworth that the Vaseline would do the job. I underwent this very same process with a local Port Colvern dentist named Rich Sandelli, who, who was a, a hockey teammate as well. And we didn't know exactly what we were doing when we were putting the mask together uh, or the mold together. Uh, everything hardened up nicely, But I had it down below my chin and under my throat and it actually as it hardened began to cut off my windpipe now I was breathing through a couple straws that went through uh, in the mouth area and I couldn't talk to tell Rich that I I couldn't breathe so finally I had to give him a bit of a slap on the side and he realized what was happened Uh, it had hardened enough we got it off and I did make a pretty good couple of masks out of that. Going back to the process with Dave Hainsworth, uh, uh, Ernie Higgins inserts three straws into Hainsworth's mouth, so he was breathing uh, while his face is covered with about 10 pounds of wet plaster. It was more of a ceramic thing that Rich Sandelli used on me. It felt more like plastic rather than uh, plaster when it was finished. Uh, Ernie says, now when I ask for the okay sign, I want you to raise your hands and go like this, making, of course, the okay sign. Uh, uh, Ernie says, I had one guy who actually went to sleep under there uh, because it's actually quite a relaxing feeling, according to Ernie. He said he was a Harvard goalie. Must have been out late the night before. I asked him for the okay sign, and when I didn't get an answer, I'm telling you, I thought the worst. The rest of the process includes... uh, Higgins applying plaster with a spatula to to the whole operation and then he has to take the mask off make another mold which is actually the mirror image a positive uh, image and then strips of wet fiberglass are applied uh, in a thickness that and a pattern that it assures that the mask will not shatter air holes are then cut into the mask the sharp edges are sanded down with care And uh, rubber pads are glued on the inside, but not so thick rubber pads that they would uh, cause the mask to move away from the goalkeeper's face. And some goalkeepers I know had no padding at all inside those fiberglass masks. The whole process to make one of these masks, according to Ernie, takes about 15 and a half hours. And he takes very special pride, of course, in what he does with these. And uh, when asked why he works so hard at this, Ernie's reply is... If you were the father of a goalkeeper like I am, you would understand. One of the more interesting developments of the 1970-71 hockey season, NHL season, we seem to talk about it every week, was the number of significant National Hockey League trades that were made by the various teams. At this point in the season, 13 of the 14 National Hockey League teams had actually participated in the trade market, with the Chicago Blackhawks being the only team that hadn't so, so far. Once again, we, we depend on Punch Imlach, the general manager coach of the Buffalo Sabres, for his perspective as he examines the transactions that had taken place up to this point in the season. And this is actually an article written by Punch in his syndicated uh, hockey column he put out each week through the Toronto Telegram. Punch rights have been a rash of trades lately and naturally arguments exist on whether or not the trades are good and bad. That's one of the favorite uh, occupations of hockey fans. We all love to talk trade. In fact 50 years later we have entire websites and I know we had no idea what a website would be but entire websites that are devoted to nothing but talking about trades and trade rumors. Punch says trades are made for a number of reasons. Detroit is trading to get a new team. They couldn't win with the old personnel. The only old guard left on the wings are Gary Bergman, Gordie Howe, and Alex Delvecchio. And in the coming weeks, we would learn that Gary Bergman was not a happy camper and neither was Gordie Howe. In fact, Punch says that a newspaper reporter informed him that any of Bergman, Howe, or Del Vecchio could be had in a trade with the Red Wings. And Punch says he supposed that the reporter was getting this this information to him, probably at the behest of Ned Harkness, because Punch is known as a general manager who likes older players well Imlac says that Detroit trading Gordie Howe would be emotionally unthinkable but the cold hard facts suggest it would probably be in the team's best interest at the playing or if you want to call it the technical level all the public relations level though even in the box office level it could be dynamite maybe even disastrous for the Detroit Hockey Club. Detroit has made numerous trades and Punch says he thinks they have improved their team. He knows that Red Berenson, Tim Hucklestone, Arnie Brown and Mike Robitaille could help any expansion club and in fact Mike Robitaille would eventually help the Buffalo Expansion Club. Punch says that the Detroit St. Louis trade seems to suggest that both were getting rid of problem players. Gary Unger for his outspoken criticism of the team's coaching staff and the St. Louis players for their extracurricular activities. All players were having poor years and those St. Louis players were both involved in the National Hockey League Players Association. But Punch didn't exactly specify that part of it. MLAC went on to say that the Rangers had made numerous trades trying to get their list in shape for the June draft and at the same time trying to improve that team. Rangers have two young defensemen in Omaha that they're going to have to protect in the in the June draft. They're Ab DeMarco and Andre DuPont. They're the reasons why Arnie Brown and Mike Robitaille were made expendable by Emil Francis. Philadelphia just made a trade with Toronto and Boston and the reason the Flyers gave for trading their goalie Bernie Perrant was that they were going nowhere with two great net minders and they needed to look towards the future. Naturally the first round draft pick they received from Toronto is a future asset and Rick McLeish who just scored his first NHL goal the other night is a future asset as well. He was the fourth pick in the amateur draft last June. Punch says that many players are traded and go to new teams where they do better and embarrass their former bosses. Uh, Punch says, I guess Phil Esposito of Boston is the greatest example of that. And he's a bad dream as far as Tommy Ivan of Chicago is concerned. The trade has been a great boon to hockey as a sport. And this is important. It generates interest. And that's what trade's do. There is no question that Phil Esposito is doing more for the Bruins hockey and himself than what he ever would have done in Chicago. At Chicago Phil was in the shadow of Bobby Hull and Punch says he can remember during the last Stanley Cup won by the Maple Leafs in 1967 coach Billy Ray actually benched Esposito now in four short years Phil has emerged as the greatest offensive player in the history of the National Hockey League of course Punch says I'm assuming he'll break the record this year which is of course a fabulous accomplishment Punch says that despite what many fans think Every time he made a trade he honestly believed that he was helping the team for whom he was making the trade. There were two big deals during his era with Toronto. The Bathgate deal was made to win a third Stanley Cup and it did and Bathgate scored the winning goal in that final game in 1964. Imlak said that the Maple Leafs had become sort of self-satisfied after two cups in a row and he felt that the the players needed a jolt to wake it up. There was plenty of criticism leveled at Imlac because he gave away Arnie Brown and Rod Sealing, two very young defensemen, with Dick Duff and Bob Nevin, who were great crowd favorites in Toronto. Punch said, I couldn't have protected Brown and Sealing anyway, and they certainly couldn't have cracked that lineup of Carl Brewer, Bobby Vaughn, Alan Stanley, and Tim Horton, and Punch was right about that. Punch said he had a ready answer for all the criticism he got for that trade. He said, Well, we won two Stanley Cups since the deal. How many has New York won? New York has two players left out of the five we sent there Bob Nevin and Rod Sealing. The other big deal Punch made that he referred to in this article was with Detroit, in which Frank Mahovlich, Gary Unger, Pete Stemkowski, and the rights to Carl Brewer went to the Red Wings for Normie Ullman, Paul Henderson, and Floyd Smith. Punch says, I think it's sufficient to point out that none of the players are with Detroit and Paul Henderson and Norm Ullman are both having a fantastic year in Toronto and it couldn't happen to nicer fellows. So that is our show this week, everyone. No uh, game highlights this week. We had just too much news items that we wanted to report on. And I really wanted to get that uh, perspective from Punch Imlach on on the trades that are being made. So what did we learn in in this episode this week? Well, we learned that George Armstrong was seen as a class act in 1971. And we, we remember him as such 50 years later. We got uh, a very good insight into the fellow who's making goalie masks for some of hockey's biggest goaltending names. And we got an NHL general manager's perspective on all the trades happening this year. As we inch closer to the playoffs for the 70-71 season, we have some more stories we're going to talk about next week. Uh, we will mention about Dave Keon, who's enjoying one of his finest NHL seasons, and we'll report on that. Uh, we will learn that Gordie Howe is sent to Florida for a rest right during the NHL schedule, but we started to wonder, is there more to this than originally met the eye? and there were more veterans on the move as the NHL trading market heated up once again and we'll have much much more as well the 50 years ago and hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole and we can't thank him enough for all his hard work Andy is now in the business of producing podcasts professionally and if you're thinking of getting one started get a hold of me i'll hook you up with one of the best podcast producers in the business. Andy is a true media professional. The very popular Juno nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction music and if you ever get a chance to see them perform live, don't miss that chance. Take their show in. It's it's a great high energy performance. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail and of course the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us every day during the hockey season on Twitter at hockey50years. We're on Facebook under the uh, 50 years ago in hockey banner. We have a wordpress site hockey50yearsago.com. Of course, the podcast can be downloaded wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks again to everyone who tunes into this show. Uh, the 7071 season was one of the most memorable that I followed in my 70 years on the planet. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice